will have a seat, those who are standing, and let's open up, yeah, to Deuteronomy. Let's get back into it. I have four weeks to think about this. And uh, during the processing and the thinking, uh, you know, at first, I knew, I knew I wanted to teach on this section. We'll be in Deuteronomy 17. And I knew I wanted to teach from here, and, and I had it lined up, but I wasn't sure exactly what the application would be for us, for you and for me. And it's taken a little bit of time to process, but I really believe, I believe strongly in what uh, we're going to talk about and what the Lord has to say. Uh, I believe he wants us to hear it today. So we're going to go ahead and go there. There will be a sprinkling of stories from Africa, so I can't help it. It's where I've been. It's where my head's been. So I'll, I'll throw some stuff out to you to know. Cheryl right now and Christopher are... Um, about an hour outside of Seattle. So they will land while I'm preaching if I can stay awake long enough. Um, yeah, they landed at JFK um, about five and a half hours ago, actually about seven hours ago. And what's amazing, and, and it's so cool to be able to say this, that uh, the moment Christopher's feet hit U.S. soil, he became a citizen. So he's a citizen. Three weeks ago, he became my son by official adoption in a dingy little courthouse in Bolgatonga, Ghana. And God has been faithful. And he has seen us through, those of you who have been aware of this, a long, long journey. But, but I can say at this side of it, what a blessing it really has been to see him at work. Well, more on that perhaps in a minute, but Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you'll tune in there, beginning in verse 14, Deuteronomy 17, 14. And we'll go back and pick up Deuteronomy 16 where we left off before I left on, on Wednesday night and roll on forward. But this passage, this section, interesting. Deuteronomy 17, 14, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. From among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom and in the midst of Israel. And Father, apply this to your people. There's a very simple, Lord, interpretation and understanding as you commanded this for the kings of Israel in times that would be yet future to Moses saying this. But, Lord, there is an application here I, I believe is so profound. And I ask that you would write it into and on our hearts and into our lives. And this is something only your spirit can do. So we appeal to you, Holy Spirit, in the name of God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So, first Ghana story. September 7th, this was a Tuesday, we visited Agape Refuge. You've heard us talking about Agape Refuge. Uh, Angelo ate a lot. Michael ate a lot. We know him. Uh, he's called Angelo in Ghana, and he, he's working on a school up there. The school is nearly done. It's, it's very close to being finished, and it's amazing. And it's a beautiful building in the midst of a village. It's the village of Katanga. That village is larger than the uh, combination of Anacortes and Oak Harbor together, just in terms of, of space. When you think village in Africa, northern Africa, you've got to think two things. First of all, National Geographic from 100 years ago. It has not changed. Mud huts. Uh, the way people live there is so different than we can even comprehend here in the States. It's just, it's um, amazing that in 2021, people still live the way that they did centuries ago. That, you gotta think that, but you also need to think population-wise, this single village, again, larger than not only the ground from Anacortes to south of Oak Harbor, but much larger population-wise. Many, many more people. So we went there, and I saw the, I saw the school, and, and this is something, if you've wondered, should we do this? Are we right to be behind this? We poured some money in that direction, and you know, what if? This is, this is a God thing. He is at work in the midst of this large village, and he is doing something really amazing there, and I think you'll understand more in just a second. But we ended the day, so we went there. We saw, walked through the Agape Refuge. In fact, I think if you go to the website, which is agaperefuge.org, is that right? Agape Refuge Oak Harbor. Just look up Agape Refuge Oak Harbor. You'll, you'll find it. But there, there's some video on there of Michael and I walking around Agape Refuge and talking about it and looking at what will be the classrooms. And, and the roof wasn't on when we were doing that. The roof is now on and the windows are in and uh, it, it's amazing. But we spent some time doing that and then we came back to a container. Now in Ghana, a container is a storefront. It's, it's usually a, there will be a roof, a, a metal roof. It's about a 10 by 10 structure with three walls, a metal roof, sometimes a concrete floor, usually a dirt floor, and then it's just open to the front. And they'll have anything from chips and snacks and water to uh, other provisions, things that need, people need to buy. These containers in Bolga, in the city of Bolga, are like lined up one after another, rows and rows and rows and thousands of people, and it's, it's pretty intense. But out in the villages, you, you could travel three, four miles, and then there's a container. And then you keep going, and there's a container. Well, every evening, Michael goes to this particular container and meets up with four or five friends there in Ghana. After a day's work, Michael considers it one of his favorite things to do. They just hang out and talk, argue mostly, but, but it's fun arguing. And they get after it, and they, and they talk spiritual things. They talk Bible. They have questions. And there have been several times, you may not know this, but several times where my watch buzzed in the middle of teaching on a Sunday morning, and I came to find out later it was Michael saying, Rick, you got to answer this question. I'm like, Michael, stop calling me Sunday morning. Any other time is fine. So he was eager for me to meet these guys and to engage in some of the questions that had come up, like the death of Moses. They wanted to know all about the death of Moses because their perspective, his friend's perspective, is God killed Moses. God killed Moses. How can you see it any other way? And Michael's like, God didn't kill Moses. Rick, help us. So we sat and we're talking with these guys, and, and this debate was, it was fascinating. 
We talked about the death of Moses. We talked about heaven. We talked about destiny. There was one guy who was really pushing the idea of destiny. And, and he was also pushing the idea of you believe in Old Testament and New Testament. Or do you just skip over the Old Testament and believe in the New Testament only? That's what you Christians do. When he said that, I'm like, okay, this guy's not a believer. Turns out he was Muslim. And as we continued to talk, we, we, I, I just, I started to sense, and I've said this before, this is my go-to, because I'm not smart enough to think of anything else. When you don't know how to answer a question, just talk about Jesus. When you don't have all of the debate down, and someone's throwing stuff at you, and you're feeling overwhelmed, just talk about Jesus. Look, I, I may not be able to answer all your questions, but I can tell you about Jesus. And so I started going that direction, kept coming back to the love of God in Jesus Christ. There was one man there, Elijah. And, and I, was, I remember looking at Elijah and saying, Elijah, God proved that he loved you through his son's death on the cross. And Elijah was quiet. And, and it was interesting. I noticed as we were talking, when I brought it back to Jesus, everything quieted down. All debate stopped, all arguing quieted, and they just listened. And then someone would say, but what about eternal destiny? And psh, off we go. And I go, okay, blah, 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 blah. Argue, 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 argue. Hey, but, but let me tell you something more about Jesus. And it quieted down. There is something about the name of Jesus that it just brings authority that is not yours. And people get it. They know it's, this is not you. It's something greater. So we talked about it. And, and Elijah then, as we're there at the container, Elijah said, hey, would you, would you come back and teach some kids some can I, if I can gather some children, would you come back and teach some children tomorrow? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So the next morning, Wednesday, um, Cheryl and Christopher stayed back at the hotel. Christopher wanted to swim. I got that. I understood that. So I took a can-do. They shouldn't be called, they should be called can-don'ts. <laughs> These are three-wheeled, like, golf carts kind of thing with a little canopy and the driver, and these things book it like 40, 50 miles an hour, and you're taking your life in your own hands, but it's a cheap way to get around. So we were in a can-do, and I, I go all the way back. I meet Michael at the container. We met the sub-chief of the, of the village there and spent some time with him talking about the school and, and trying to make headway just with his understanding. And then we jump back in the can-do, and we head over to, again, into Katanga, near where Agape Refuge is. There's a big circular covered area like stones in a, in a huge circle, and, and they've got it covered over the top. And as we come around these, this grove of trees, and we start coming, and Michael says, that's his up ahead, I look, there were 85 kids there, and another 20 or 30 adults standing around them waiting for us. I'm thinking I'm going to talk to two or three or maybe 10 kids. And as I see them, I go, oh, Lord. <laughs> that was my first thought. My second thought is, where's Cam? Because I don't do this. I don't do the kids' stuff, you know. I'm like, well, yes, and the tabernacle has these pieces of furniture, and it all lines up like the cross, and you can process this when you're, you know. And I, I don't, kids. So I'm like, Jesus, help me talk to the kids. And, and so I got out there, and, and we had this, this gathering. And I spoke through Elijah. He was my translator, which is kind of cool to have Elijah for a translator. So we're standing, we're talking, and I'm trying to cut through the mix because something else that I learned while we were there very quickly on is the religious aspect, especially in northern Ghana, is a mishmash. It is a mishmash of Islam, of Catholicism, of prosperity gospel Christianity. That is huge in Ghana. Huge. 
People absolutely impoverished while the pastor, and we went to church the next week and I saw this, uh, the pastor's asking for money after money after money through the whole service. It's money. It's all about giving your money. You've got to give your money. If you want God to bless you, you've got to give their, your money. And these people don't have it. it made me angry. So you've got prosperity gospel going on. You've got Catholicism going on. You have Islam, and Islam is very rampant up in the north. And then you've got the ancestral juju religion, which is pagan spiritism, basically. And the thing is, it's all mixed up. The, the Christians, so-called, that would say I'm a Christian, buy into Islam. And the Muslims buy into some aspect of Christianity and the Catholics, and it's all just this, nobody really knows, nobody really understands. And I knew this going in, so I'm, I'm talking to these kids, but there are these adults and teens standing around who are living in this kind of mashed up environment. They still do sacrifices, folks. You go to meet the sub-chief, you bring a chicken or a dog or something to sacrifice as an offering to the chief. And they sacrifice infants as offerings in the villages. This is, this is happening in 2021. So I go into this mess of spiritual whatever and, and thinking, Lord, I got one shot to try and do something here. Talk about a can't do. <laughs> and we talked and we shared and I talked about Jesus. Again, the only way I know to deal with stuff like this, just you go back to Jesus. And when I talked about him, you could have heard a pin drop. These kids don't have Nintendo, so it makes a, a big difference. You know, they can pay attention. And they just sat and they listened. And I, I kept it short for me. It was about 20, 25 minutes that I talked about Jesus and I told some stories about him. And when I was all done, and again, I'm, I'm having to speak through a translator, through Elijah. So I'd speak and then Elijah would speak. When I'm all done, there's an older man right on the edge of the crowd wearing these big, thick glasses. And um, probably, I don't know, it's hard to say, but in his 70s, maybe, and standing there, but he's smiling the whole time. And there was something that told me, I think this guy gets it. I, I think this, I found out later this is Elijah's father. <laughs> and so he's smiling, and he's listening, and he's smiling. And then I said, do any of you have any questions? Any questions at all? One little girl raised her hand in the front row. How come you're so white and we're so black? <laughs> right? I just said, have you seen your son? <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I mean, it was funny. And then they laughed. All the kids were laughing. They thought it was hilarious that I was so white and, and I, I didn't. But that, you know, it's what it was <laughs> when you're the only white guy in the entire crowd. And then Elijah's dad raises his hand. Yeah. And, and he goes, how can we learn more about Jesus? I love the question. And I think now, processing it afterwards, he was asking for the kids how, how can they know more about what you share? And I was just sharing out of John 5 and 6, talking about the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, and, and Jesus saying, I'm the bread from heaven. And I was just talking about those stories. How can, how can we learn more about Jesus? Wow. And now my mind's racing. It's easy here. You know what I would tell you? Open your Bible, man. Read one of the Gospels. But the first thing that hit me, and it was funny because I saw Les's face in my mind. I really did. I did. I went, pray. I said, the, the first and best thing you can do, and I said, kids, if you want to know Jesus, pray. But don't pray religiously. 
Don't use words that you've been given or told. Talk to him like I'm talking to you. Talk to him like you would your dearest friend and ask him to reveal himself to you. I believe Jesus is faithful to do that. So I said, that, that's number one. You know, as a pastor, you've got to have three points. Number one, <laughs> pray and ask Jesus to show himself to you. And then I said, secondly, when you, when you read your Bible, when you open a Bible, look for Jesus in the Bible because the Bible says, and you all know, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I said, the, the Bible, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me. You guys have heard this a million times. So I said, so look for Jesus in the Bible. Maybe read one of the gospels. And as I'm talking, Michael goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. By the way, everyone in Ghana says, uh-huh. That's a thing. He goes, uh-huh, Rick. And I go, uh-huh, what, Michael? <laughs> he said, they don't have any Bibles. And he said, and even if they did, they don't read. Most are illiterate. Those who are literate, there is frafra up in the north is a spoken language. Now, there are frafra Bibles, but no one who speaks frafra has been learned to read frafra. He says this, I'm standing here among all of these beautiful children, and I'm thinking in my head, how in the world am I supposed to give them something to do? How in the world am I supposed to help them know Jesus? I'm in a can-do, and I'm out of here. And they don't even have a Bible to refer to, and if they did, they couldn't read it. And I, I, my mind was spinning. And I looked around at them, and I, and I said, you know what? I said, okay, then you pray that he reveals himself to you. And I said, secondly, you can Secondly was the Bible. So thirdly, I said, love each other the way he loved you. You can do that starting right now. And I said, and the way he loved you was he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. Jesus gave his life. And I took him through the gospel. And I landed at John 3.16. And I said, pray if someone has a Bible, if you have access to a Bible, look for Jesus and, and love each other the way he loved you. And then we passed out toffees, candy, to all the kids, which they were waiting for. And we got back in the can-do, Michael and I, and we start heading back to town, and, and Michael just goes, he goes, Rick, sometimes it just seems impossible. And I, and I said, I used the pun right then. I said, yeah, it's a can't do, right? I know. And, he, and we laughed together. And, and he goes, no, I just, even with the school, I wonder, am I crazy? How, how in the world are we going to make a difference here? And I remember thinking immediately about Paul. What do you think Paul felt like when he left Antioch for the first time? on the missionary journey. We all just assume, oh, it's Paul. He was confident and courageous and off he went. He was going to places to talk about a man that nobody had ever heard of outside of Judea. Going into, especially as he left the Jewish towns, at least he could rely on the Hebrew scriptures. But as he began to go into the secular world and the Greek, the Greco-Roman world to talk about Jesus, who in the world is that? They didn't know anything of this man, his crucifixion. That was a local thing. How in the world could one man think he could make any difference at all in this world? Well, 2,000 years later, we know how, don't we? Just takes one. And by the way, Paul wrote, faith comes from hearing and hearing 
by the word Christ. The word Christ doesn't just mean the Bible. The word Christ means the logos, Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by Jesus who is the word. And so that's what we need. We need to speak the name and the name needs to be heard over and over and over and over. And by the way, the next day, in a great big divine heavenly, I told you so, to my faltering faith, we baptized 18 kids and adults. Now, they weren't from the container or, or from that region. They were from, if you've heard me use the name, Mama Lottie. Lottie has a children's home. And Lottie brought all the kids from her children's home and eight of her staff over to the hotel, and we baptized them in the pool. It, it, was, it was an absolute hoot because we baptized them, and then, of course, they stayed around for a pool party for about three hours. <laughs> it was so much fun. On Friday of that same week, so that was Tuesday, Wednesday, and on Friday, Christopher officially became our son. And at the end of that week, I remember sitting there with Cheryl talking about this and recognizing for me, this, this whole thing, our whole journey for three and a half years with Christopher, and really for a lifetime, has been and is about knowing God. Your life is about knowing God. My life is about knowing God. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Listen, God wants to be known. In the villages of Katanga, where everybody's confused and nobody can read, God wants to be known there. And in Oak Harbor and Anacortes, in northwest Washington, where people think they got it all figured out on their own, God wants to be known. And that's eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's knowing him. He is not the distant mashup of, of false religious gods. He, he is not the, the version of twisted Christianity that we don't just see, by the way, in Africa. We see in America. He is not the pagan juju spiritism. That is not God. And he is not the karmic universe that seems to be flooding millennials in this generation of America, which shocks me to say something like that, that is not God. The whole universal or the universe is looking out for me or I'm sending positive energy your way is such a de, a de divination. I, I don't know, de, I was going to say dehumanization. I guess we could say that. It's a dehumanization of Jesus who came near so that we would know God, not so that then we would throw our hope out into the vastness of nothing. God wants to be known, and he wants to be known by you and known by me, and he wants us to know him personally and really and actually and legitimately in our natural lives as he supernaturally intervenes. That's, that's what he wants. It is what he desires. Are you up for that? Do you want that? I, I, we do. And it's what people need. Two weeks ago, we're driving back through Accra, and Christopher saw a sign, a big uh, sign on the, on the side of the street, and it said, Noble House. A noble House, so I think it was a hotel or something, but it just said, Noble House, and he goes, Dad, 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 this is what he does. Dad, Dad. I go, what, Christopher? What, what, what does noble mean? What does noble mean? You ever had to answer a question like that? What does noble mean? It's like a, it's like a king, or I, I don't know, noble. And I started thinking about that. 
It comes from the Latin word nobilis. Of course, I'm telling him this. It's Latin. Of course, no, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> and I, I actually had trouble answering what does noble mean, trying to describe it in a way that, that he'd understand. And, and, and I, so I looked it up later. It comes from nobilis, nobilis in the Latin, which is of noble bearing or, uh, or birth, royal birth. But, but it comes from an old French root. Get this. The French root is no. Not like K-N-O-W like we have it, but G-N-O, no. The French root, it literally means to be known. So to be noble is to be known. Now, we could spread that out and we could say, oh, yeah, to be famous. Well, that's a very empty form of nobility. Celebrity. The question that we have to answer, and it's the question that I ask you as we now head into this truly noble section of Scripture, is by whom do you want to be known? By whom do you want to be known? Luke, in the book of Acts, describes the Jews in the region of Berea this way. He says, Acts 17, 11, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And the word noble-minded, the, the root word for noble there is gno, G-N-O. It's where actually gnosis comes from, where the word Gnosticism comes from, which was an ancient false uh, Christianity of people who had a, had a knowing, a special knowing that was further than the scriptures. But the, but the word, no, these were more noble-minded. These were people who wanted to know the truth, is what Luke is saying. Nobility is not celebrity. It is not fame, as we might think of it today. To be known at a distance is not relationship. By the way, this is something that messes up so many celebrities in our culture. They become famous and absolutely lonely because nobody really knows them. Oh, they're known, but they're not known. Now, I know I go after social media a lot. I recognize that. Part of it is because I'm 57 and I just don't get it. But a lot of it is also because I watch this stuff and multiplying friends and followers and likes and views is not real. It's not real. It's a taped-on version of fame that is me parents messing up our kids because they think that they're known. They are not known. And when the vast emptiness of thousands of followers and no one who really knows who you are by heart hits them, it crushes them. Celebrity is not nobility. In fact, the kind of celebrity we see now with social media and, and, and the getting my name out there and being an influencer and being known and all of this. Hey, listen, it is childish because it misses what true relationship is about. I loved what Michael said about meeting his friends at the container. He said, ah, Rick, I love, I love leaving at the end of a long day of working at Agape Refuge and just hanging out with these guys and we'll, and we'll hang out and talk three, four hours. He said, it's just, it's, just, it's my favorite time of the day. I'm like, Angelo gets it. That's being known, and it's knowing. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and we're going to get back to Deuteronomy 17 sometime before Cheryl lands. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. What do children think? Hey, I want to be famous someday. When I became a man, 
I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, listen, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. That's nobility. That is nobility. To be known fully by Jesus and to be fully known, to know Jesus fully and be fully known by him. The Berean Jews were noble-minded because they received the word to know the truth. They wanted to really know. And even better, listen, even better, all those Jews in Berea, the truth wanted to know them. Jesus wanted them. Jesus sent Paul to Thessalonica and Ephesus and Philippi and all the way to Rome and beyond, and yes, to Berea, because Jesus wanted to know them and wanted them to know he knew them. We sing this, truth has a name, and the name is Jesus. So by whom do you want to be known? Stick that in the back of your mind. Go back to Deuteronomy 17. I want to look at this through the lens of nobility. That is the, the truly noble life, not celebrity, nobility, a life that, is, that knows Jesus and is known by Jesus because that's the point of the whole thing. But we begin in verse 14 with a surprisingly prophetic and plaintive word. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. There is something sad in that. As, as the Lord is telling his people, when you say we want a king like a nations and, and he's going to make provision for that, how did it feel for God who established Israel as his people and a theocracy over which he was king, how did it feel for God to recognize they would want someone else? Another king. God is king. God delivered his people. We're not far out from that in Deuteronomy. They're not even in the land yet. Remember, they're on the plains of Moab looking across the Jordan toward going into the promised land. They are not that long out from Egypt. And God has shown himself faithful again and again and again throughout the journeys. Remarkable, miraculous, supernatural things. But here God says, by the way, when you get into the land, you're going to want another king. I recognize that. And I, I tried to think, Lord, from your perspective, what was that like? He deserves the glory and the honor and, and the authority the priesthood serving at his pleasure, at his temple centered in the land and his people coming to him to worship him and love him as he loves them, central in the land. And yet, when you come into the land and you say, we want another king. And you know what? It's not the only time that's happened. It happened with Israel. It is parallel to the coming of Jesus. John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Didn't even know him. Forget ourselves for a minute. How does that feel for Jesus? How does it feel for God to come into the world he created, but nobody even recognizes it's him? And then he came to his own, that is Israel, the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. Well, guess what? It happened to Jesus, but long before that, it happened to him with Israel as God said, when you come into the land, you're going to be looking for someone else. 
heartbreaking. How heartbreaking to know that your people are going to reject you like that. They're going to want someone else. They're going to want flesh and blood. They're going to want some skin on the king. They're going to want to be able to see him and, and, and experience him and, and touch him or, or, or be touched by him. And they gave up this amazing, merciful, gracious, powerful, supernatural, awesome, present God for a man. When you come into the land, you're going you're to want another king. My friends, ain't nothing noble about that. It is absolute foolishness. Psalm 53, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt. They've committed abominable injustice. There's no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Why? Because we don't know. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. 1 Corinthians 1.21, Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And what about those who accept the lordship of Jesus? I hope it's not you. But people who give their lives to Christ, they go into the waters of baptism. They set themselves up to follow Jesus as their king, as their ruler, as their standard, only then to give in to their own self-rule or perhaps the rule of someone else. It still happens today. Paul said in Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul said, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? If you know him, how can you wander from him? If you know him, how can you want another instead of him? That is not nobility. And even knowing they were going to reject him as their king, God still, by his grace and mercy, by his deep love, he establishes standards for a noble king. Verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Look, if you're going to do this, and I know you are, let's do it my way. I will choose the man. Set a king over you who the Lord your God chooses from among your countrymen. So he has to be an Israelite. You shall set him as king over yourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of your countrymen. If you're going to do this thing, do it my way with the king of my choosing. Now, what's interesting in this section of Deuteronomy 17, this is unusual. This small passage is unique to Deuteronomy. It's not in any of the rest of Torah. It's nowhere else. You can't find it anywhere else in the law. It's only right here. McConville, in his commentary, said the law of the king is one of the most remarkable and important in Deuteronomy. Craigie, in his commentary, said this section is the only one of its kind in the Pentateuch. It doesn't expound the kingly office in detail. Note that. Pay attention to that. It doesn't tell what the king is supposed to do. It tells how the king is supposed to be. It's very different. Craigie says it specifies the attitudes and character of the king. 
So as unique as this passage is in the Torah, it also, there is nowhere where you can find God saying, and this is how the office of the king is supposed to be run. These are the duties of the king, of the ruler in Israel. No, he says, this is the heart. This is what I want the king to look like. Why? Because it's still all about Yahweh. And, and as we'll see, what he expects of the king, <coughs> what he wants for the king, this is all about a king who knows the Lord. And who then, can someone grab me some water? Thanks, Jacob. I'm, I'm <coughs> oh, never mind. Got it. Covered. <laughs> this is life in Ghana. Um, <coughs> The king was to be noble. That is, the king was to know God. The, I love this. Every other nation, every other rule, every other, uh, in the history of, of the world, the king's job is to rule the people, not in Israel. Do you realize that? That the kings of Israel were never set up to be rulers. They were set up to be examples of a man in relationship with God. That is totally different than any other authority we have ever seen over nation or country in history. God said, he shall be a man of my choosing, and the whole point is that he will stand before Israel as one who knows me. That's nobility. He knows me and is known, and I know him. He's known by me. Now watch this. We see this royal law exemplified in Israel's first three kings. What you read here happens with King 1, King 2, and King 3 specifically. And finally, this law for the king is personified, if you read it through, in Israel's last and final king who is yet to return and rule, Jesus Christ. Is this king, is the description of this king all the way through point by point? Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 21, their leader shall be one of them and their ruler shall come forth from their midst. It's a prophecy of Jesus. And I will bring him near, and he shall approach me, for who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. I'll tell you who would dare, the Lord. And he, Messiah, he, this ruler who will come from among you, Israel, he will be your connection with me. He will be the exact representation, the Hebrew writer said. And he says, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So God's had it in mind all along that, yeah, there's going to be a king ruling over the people from Jerusalem, and that king's name is Jesus, and he is God in the flesh. So he's going to take care of this. But, but now watch this quickly. Three Israelite kings, the first three were Saul, David, and Solomon, Right? Is my history correct on that? Saul, David, and Solomon, the first three kings, and the first king is the first violation of this noble law. What do you mean? How's he a violation? Saul was not God's choice. He was the people's choice. So three points this morning, and we'll just follow the three kings. Number one, Saul, the people's choice. And it's a violation of the very beginning of, we're not even into what the king is supposed to be or how he's supposed to act. <clears throat> we're just talking about 
that he is supposed to be from among the people that God's choice, God's choosing. Listen to this. I'll just read it to you. First Samuel, if you want to go there, First Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, and just a couple of things. We're going we're gonna to get to this quickly, Lord willing. We'll get to Saul and, and David and Solomon and the kings. We're going to start learning about that in the history of Israel, and it's fascinating and applicable. But Saul, being the first king, many are surprised to realize God didn't choose Saul. God didn't say, I want Saul for this position. No. Listen to this. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. I'm going to throw a couple of passages out of Samuel at you. 1 Samuel 8, 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. It's exactly what Moses prophesied, what the Lord spoke to Israel. A king like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel, Samuel the prophet at that time, the great prophet Samuel. Verse 6, when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord, and listen to this, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Think about how that felt. How would it feel to you? After all God had done for the people, for the people to reject him, and he knows. It's not like God was going, oh, they want a king? Yeah, let's do it. No, it. God feels these things. They have rejected me. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Remarkable. They forsake, had forsaken him. He would never forsake them. And then in verse 9, now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will, who will reign over them. What procedure? Deuteronomy 17. The law of nobility, the law of the king. That's what it's got to look like, God says. That's what it needs to be. And so up comes Saul. But Saul, again, was not God's choice. He's the people's choice. He fit the bill. He looked the part, strapping and strong. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. man by the name of uh, uh, Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel, who from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Saul was the, he was the real deal. Saul was the original Shampoo, head and shoulders. He was head and shoulders above all the people. We still have head and shoulders. Can you get that like on Amazon? Okay, good. Yeah. So, I don't know why I'm looking at you, Steve. I don't think that you use. Never mind. Saul was tall. Saul was strapping. Saul was impressive. He was above all others. He was the people's choice. Saul was, as described, a king like all the nations had. That's what we want, one like their guy. Paul was a celebrity, to be sure. But Paul, or Saul, Saul was not a man with a noble heart. And that's the problem from the beginning. If you look over at chapter 13, verse 14. 1 Samuel 13, 14. Samuel has to say to Saul, and we'll get into the, the nitty-gritty of this story at a later date, but he has to say to Saul, now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself 
a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over the people, his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What had the Lord commanded Saul? Well, it goes back to Deuteronomy 17. That's where it starts. If you're going to be a king for God over Israel, you got to have the right heart, the right attitude. It's about knowing and being known by the Lord. It's not about all this other stuff. And more than that, Saul is violating Torah law. Saul was at a place called Gilgal. And, and at Gilgal, he's waiting for Samuel to come offer sacrifices to God. That was Samuel's job. And Samuel was to come do that. And Saul's waiting. Samuel's delayed. But then finally Saul goes, dude, it's been a week. Have you ever been that way with the Lord? Lord, I prayed about this and I have waited a solid week. Where's the answer? Three and a half years ago. No, I won't go there. I wait a week, I wait two, I wait a month. I've been praying, God's not answering me. Hang on, cool your jets. Give him a chance to answer perfectly because he always does. And Saul is just impatient. Samuel's not coming, so he goes, I got this. And he offers up a burnt offering which was forbidden for the king. That was a priest's job. It was not a king's job. A prophet could even do it. The king could not offer sacrifices. So why did Saul do it? Well, he was losing his crowd. The Bible says the people were dispersing. You see him go, he's like, oh no, oh no. Celebrity doesn't want to lose their crowd. He wants to make sure he keeps the people. And by the way, that's the problem with being the people's choice is you got to keep pleasing the people. You got to do what the people want you to do. Paul, the apostle, said in Galatians 1.10, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's not about being a people pleaser, and that is what celebrity is. you got to meet the people where they're at and do for the people what they want you to do. And Saul was right there in 1 Samuel 15.22. 1 Samuel 15.22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? That's the problem, Saul. You went off to do sacrifice. That was not what he wanted. He wanted you to obey him. And to heed the fat of rams, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. How so? Rebellion is trading out God for someone else or something else or your own self-rule. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. Down in verse 27, Samuel turns to go. Saul grabs the edge of his robe and it tears. And Samuel says to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Saul was known by the people. Man, his TikTok would have been blowing up if it was today. Everybody checking him out. But all Saul ever really did for Israel was stir up giants and enemies and leave the mess ultimately for David. And I just say this, you all know this about America. We get what we vote for, the people's choice. If it's about the people's choice, we get what the people want. And a lot of times the people want what the people do not need. What Israel needed, what I would say America needs more desperately than any time in our history is we need God's choice. And God's choice is Jesus, who knows you 
and wants to be known by you. Well, chronologically, David is Saul's neighbor. David is next. But hold off on him for a second. Because in these first three kings, we've got to switch them out of order. The, the first one, Saul, very much like the beginning of, uh, of the royal law back in Deuteronomy 17, he was, not the people's, he was not God's choice. He was the people's choice. So we have a violation right there. Secondly, think about the third king of Israel because he fulfills this literally and with the exact opposite of what the law called for, Solomon. So we go from Saul, the people's choice, to Solomon, who's actually the third one. So we're going one to three, and we'll go back to two. Solomon, the worldly choice. He is the worldly choice in his own choices. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 17, 16. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. The law of the kings reads like a stinging rebuke of Solomon's entire rule. Some have even said, well, perhaps Deuteronomy 17 was inserted later, you know, because it's too exact as to what Solomon did. <laughs> Prophecy, the Lord sees, the, the Lord warns, the Lord gives heads up. Man, if this wasn't so poignant, so amazing. He shall not multiply horses. Solomon built entire chariot cities. The remnants and the remains we've seen in Israel, and we will see if you're coming with us. By the way, I have about five more spots if you want to go to Israel. About 35 people signed up. We can take up to five more on this tour if you want to go. There's still, still time in, in the fall or March, March 14th through 28th, I believe it is. So if you want to do that, come talk to me. But in Israel, Megiddo was a chariot city. That's one of the first things we see on the first day of the tour. We have discovered, they have discovered, uh, archaeologists have found that there were, by some estimates, Solomon built 20,000 stables in all of his chariot cities, which includes Jerusalem. Under the Temple Mount, there are the stables of Solomon. Some of those have been seen and photographed and, and written about, and many of them right now are in the sub-level of the Al-Aqsa Mosque being used for Muslim study rooms but those were the stables of Solomon. He shall not multiply for himself horses. He shall not multiply for himself wives. 1 Kings 11.3, Solomon had 700 wives. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> it's all I can do. I told Cheryl, we're, we're walking through Bolga about two, three weeks ago, and she's got these short little legs compared to mine. I have to run to keep up with her whether we're walking somewhere or just in life in general, I can't even imagine 700 Cheryls. I would lose <laughs> my mind. 700 wives, princesses, and if that wasn't enough, and 300 concubines. And the king shall not do that. He shall not greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Solomon amassed greater riches than any king on earth at that time, and some have argued by comparison even to this day one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. Horses, wives, money. Hang on a second. What's wrong with horses? Well, 
we know what's wrong with horses here and the multiplying of horses. The finest horses in the world at the time were Egyptian thoroughbreds. God says, don't go there. Let's not have a reverse exodus. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. What is Egypt a picture of, Bible students? The world. Don't go back to the world to amass military might and power and strength for yourself, to be impressive. Don't go back to the world. The noble heart does not go after worldly power. That's what the horses are about. If you like horses, that's fine. You want to watch Heartland or something like that? That's cool. This is about image and, and power and might and chariot horses and chariot cities and a mighty army. God says, don't be that way if you're, if you're my king. And in fact, over in Isaiah chapter 30, you've heard this many times here at the bridge. Thus, the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved, in quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. He says, we will, you say, we'll ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you will be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will all flee at the threat of five until your left is a flag on a mountaintop and a signal on a hill. The Lord, therefore, longs to be gracious to you. Don't go back to Egypt and buy up horses. Don't put your faith and your trust in military might or worldly power. Do I even need to ask the problem with don't multiply many wives? Now, part of this was Solomon with the wives was ensuring his own hegemony. This is what you did politically. You married daughters of other kings. You, you married across to establish treaties with other countries. And then you were, well, not only connected, but you were, uh, yeah, yeah, you kind of owed them. And they owed you. And now there's this interconnectedness and it, it's political strength. But you know what? All it does is reduce your strength. See, this is part of the battle that's been going on in America for the last decade or so is this idea of globalism versus independence. And the more global this country becomes, the less strong we will be until this country is just kind of like the massive socialistic, communistic globalism. A little political aside for you there. But... Solomon had 700 wives. He had princesses. He had 300 concubines. His wives turned his heart away. It's one of the most stunning uh, real realities in Scripture. His wives turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, 1 Kings 11, 4, his wives turned, turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. And that Solomon, and one of the most amazing things that I have ever recognized or realized is that we may not even see Solomon in heaven. And we may see Nebuchadnezzar. Because at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, he's praising God as the only true God. At the end of Solomon's life, his heart is turned away after other gods. And God warned against that. Don't multiply horses. Don't multiply wives because they're going to turn you, man. They're going to turn you. By the way, both Muhammad and Joseph Smith had multiple wives. They boasted of that. You know what I love? Jesus didn't have a wife. He has a bride. But he didn't have a wife. You might say, well, hang on, Rick. Okay, 
I understand multiple wives and all that, but <clears throat> isn't marriage a good thing? Isn't that God-ordained? Didn't He establish that all the way back with Adam and Eve? And you know your Bible well. Yes, He did. Marriage between a man and a woman for life. That's God's plan. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, I would argue with Paul at the container about that, you know, good for a man not to touch a woman. What? What are you talking about? Paul, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of how we're made, right? Man for woman, woman for man. It's a good thing. Paul says, well, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. And then he says, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, which at that point at least he was single. It's possible Paul was married. I'm not going to get into that right now. At one time, his, and his wife died, and maybe he was a widower. That's possible. But at this point and in his missionary journeys, Paul is not a married man. He is, he is just a single man. He says, I, I would wish that you were like me. However, each man is, has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. What's the point? Listen, get this, understand. If one spouse can turn your heart, how about 700? <laughs> how does that apply to me, Rick? What about partners? Now, I don't, I don't assume this about any of you, uh, but let me just speak to a reality. Multiple partners is absolutely common in American society today. It's the way it is. Multiple sexual partners before, after, during, outside of marriage. Marriage is fast becoming irrelevant in our country, gutted of its true meaning, which is one man and one woman for one life. That's the biblical definition of marriage and has been for 6,000 years. And now what we're seeing is marriage being gutted and in America today, average heterosexual partners, <clears throat> I'm not even talking about bisexual or homosexual or any of that, which is stunning when you start to read the statistics on how many partners in those situations, sexual partners. Average heterosexual part partners in America today is seven. Seven. Louisiana is the highest. I don't know why, but Louisiana's highest, 15 plus sexual partners in a lifetime is average in Louisiana. What's interesting to me is Utah is actually the lowest. So I don't know, maybe they don't count polygamy. I don't know. But Utah, it's still two to three sexual partners per person is average. You know what the Bible says about that? It turns the heart away from God. Sexual partners will turn your heart from God. How can you be in a sexual relationship with someone outside of the will of God and follow him? You can't do it. It doesn't work. It turns your heart. It turns your heart. And that happened with Solomon. It's example to you and to me that a noble heart is not divided. And I'll tell you what, in your marriage, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, you need to speak Jesus to each other always. That Jesus, other worldly things, our marriage struggles. When Jesus is right at the center of things, it's all good. It's the way it's supposed to be that my job is to keep my spouse's heart turned toward Jesus. And her job is to keep my heart turned toward Jesus. That should be first and foremost for all of us in our marriages. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. For what? They shall 
see God. It's knowing God and being known by God. And so a pure heart is the issue. You might say, okay, but, but what about the wealth thing? I mean, I, I get it, you know, the riches and all that, but can't a, a, a noble-hearted person be wealthy too? Uh, let me read this to you real quickly. This is Ecclesiastes. I'm fully aware of the time, but Josiah went way over, so it's not my fault. <laughs> Actually, if I may, I loved worship this morning. Thank you. Thank you for leading us through that. It was it's what I needed Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. I'm going to give you two quick passages, and you can think through these things later. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. From Solomon's lips himself, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves abundance with its income. This is vanity. See, this is the richest man in the world. Listen to what he says. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. Man, I read that to my kids. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There's a, this is a grievous evil, which I've seen under the sun, that riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, and then there was nothing to support him, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. Job said, naked I came into the world and naked I'm going out. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind. God says, if you're my king for my people, your example cannot be that of one hoarding, of one amassing wealth. That is not to be your deal. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Note that. He doesn't say instruct them to fill the tithe box. Tell them to bring their money forward again and again and again throughout your service so that they can understand through prosperity gospel that the more they give financially, the more God will bless them. It's a lie. It's not true. God doesn't bless you because you give to him. God blesses you because that's who he is. So it's not about, you know, oh, i got to prove my, my faith and my, my grace. That's not the point. The point is that money will fail you. It will let you down. He says, instruct them to do good. 1 Timothy 6, verse 18, to be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. Store up for yourself the treasure of a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You can't hold on to your money. You're going out of this world without it, but you can take hold of eternal life, which, by the way, is knowing Jesus and being known by him. That's the noble life. It is not wealth and riches. And I'll just say this to you all. If God has blessed you, don't. This is not about feeling ashamed. That's stupid too, by the way. Not calling you stupid. I'm saying it's foolish to sit there having been blessed by the Lord and feel guilty for it. Come on. Don't feel guilty. Be generous. God's given it to you for a reason. Use it for the kingdom. Use it for his glory. Give it where it's needed. I got to tell you about this real quickly. One more little mini story. We're up in Volga. It was right before we left, day before we left there to come back to Accra. And we went to see a woman named Linda. Now, 
Grandma Judy, who we've supported and still support through Helping Ghana Kids, had told us, if you have time when you're in Bulga, please go see Linda. Linda's crippled. She lives in a mud hut, as most do, and she can't even go outside. She basically sits on a little wood plank inside this mud hut all day long. We went to see Linda. And we got in there and we sat down. So Cheryl's there and I'm there. And Judy says she loves old hymns. So we sang Amazing Grace and we sang How Great Thou Art. And it was, it was so cool because when we walked in, she was stone-faced and just staring at the ground. And we, and we came in and her daughter came in with us and sat down and told her who we were and told her Judy had sent us. And she knows Judy. As soon as she heard Judy's name, she kind of brightened up. And we brought a message. We said, we said Linda, we've come with a message from Judy but it's something we believe too and you need to hear and that is that God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you. So we began, to, we sang, we talked with her and we found out from her daughter that the reason why she sits inside all day long is the wheelchair that she had is busted. So they can't even wheel her out of the, of the hut. And then they brought the wheelchair over and we looked at it and the wheels are completely rotted off from the, from the Ghana heat and I'm like, how much is a wheelchair here? And so in, we're, technology, we're in a mud hut in Africa and Cheryl's calling Mama Lottie, who knows Linda, knows about Linda, and saying, can we get a wheelchair? Is there a wheelchair around here? Now, I, I want to tell you this, and I'm not going to name the person, but the day before, we got a, a text from Ieva saying, hey, someone in the fellowship just dropped $500 into your savings account for you guys to use while, while you're there. So I'm thinking, you know, that's, and, and this person, we, we got word back to this person, guess what, you bought a wheelchair for Linda. That's generosity. That's a noble heart. That's, that's someone saying, you know, I could spend this on myself, but maybe there's some need out there. So that money, it went to buy Linda's brand new wheelchair, and it also paid for the kids to have a swim party in our hotel pool. So, I mean, it's all good. <laughs> Solomon failed at every point of the noble law. Every point. He is not the example. He is the anti-example. But David, oh now, go back to David. Saul was the people's choice. Solomon made the worldly choice. David was God's choice. And so, David, listen to this. Um, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. It shall come about, this is what the king's supposed to do. God's already gone through what he's not supposed to do. It shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law. My friends, don't make any mistake about it. That's Torah. He's supposed to sit down and copy out the whole thing so he has his own handheld copy of God's Torah law that will be with him. As he says, a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Why? To make sure it's accurate. Make sure it is point by point. It's everything exactly as Torah is written. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. And I believe David ju did just that. The only king we actually know with absolute certainty got a copy of the law was Josiah. But David, there is, I, there is absolutely no way David didn't do this. 
I am convinced that David sat down with the Levites and he wrote out a copy of Torah. Why do you say that, Rick? Because David wrote in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And you don't know that unless you read that. And David said in Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word, David says, I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. David wrote in Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Why? David had to have a copy of Torah. Psalm 119, 167, my soul, which speaks of his thought life, his mind, his mentality, his, in, his intellect. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. See, that's what the king was supposed to do. That's the example God wanted. I want to choose him and I want to establish him before Israel, not to rule, not to boss over people, not to tell them what to do. The Levitical priest will take care of the judgment. The king's job is to know me and be known by me so that the people will see and follow the example. That's the whole idea of a godly king, of a nobleman of God. And so David did that. And quickly, jot these things down. The benefits of, of the word in your life, in my life, he, he says in verses 19 and 20, summing them up, fear the Lord. If you have the word, if you're in the word, if you study the word, guess what? You're going to fear the Lord. And if you have the word and you're in the word and you study the word, guess what? You're going to have a humble heart and, and clear, straightforward direction and even longevity in the kingdom. David reigned for 40 years as God's man, as a man after God's own heart. By the way, I plan to reign with Jesus for a thousand years, so I think it's time for all of us to get going on this. You need your copy of the law. You need the word in your lap, meditating on it day and night because, listen to me, we were made for a noble life. We were made for a noble life, to be known, not by the world, not through celebrity, but to be known by God and to know God through Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. <laughs> there were not many mighty. There were not many noble. But Ephesians 2.10, guess what? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And Revelation 1.6, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We were made to be noble. We were made for the noble life in the truest sense of the word, like the king of Israel was supposed to be, knowing God and being known by God. And listen to Jesus again. This is eternal life. This is it right here. Get it? That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the noble life. That's the life he's called us to live.
Do you know God? I don't mean religiously. Don't tell me you know about God. Don't start, start quoting me, you know. Theology. Do you know him? Do you know God? The young men in Katanga at the container were quieted by his name. The older gentleman smiled at the mention of his name, and the children were hungry to hear about Jesus Christ, to realize there is someone who knows them and wants them to know him. John said in 1 John 5, 21, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life, and that is the noble life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you, Lord, that you know us. It is, it is a humbling thought to know that the creator God of the entire universe knows me. Very humbling to recognize that in the moments of my daily life when things are not going right or when I'm afraid something's not going to happen like it's supposed to happen, to know that you actually hear me out of your temple as we sang this morning, you have heard my cries. Father, God, may we continue to live noble lives. May we know you. And may we know more than anything else that we really are known by you. I love you, Lord. I, I thank you for your word to us. And I pray if there's anyone among us who doesn't know you through Jesus, that today would be the day that the knowing and the relationship begins. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.